a Podcast One production. Brexit. You've probably heard the term and because of it, it looks and feels like Britain is in deep trouble when it comes to its politics. But that's about the extent of it. What it means, how it works and more importantly, why here in sunny old Australia should we give a flying about it? I'm Adam Peacock, and on Peacock Politics, I want to comprehend Brexit from a step away and see if the ramifications, if any, changes the political climate of Australia, which is a little more relevant than other nations, given the ties we have with Britain historically, politically, and in a sporting sense, when they have no bloody clue how to deal with Steve Smith. Nick Rowley has worked at the forefront of politics in Australia and Britain, working as an advisor to premiers here, Bob Carr in New South Wales, and prime ministers in the UK, Tony Blair in the mid-2000s. He calls Australia home again, but has a keen eye on developments back on the old dart. And Nick, I'll say this as delicately as I can to start. What the bloody hell is going on over there? Well, it's a mess. (laughs) Um, One of my teenage kids has left home. And it uh, reminds me rather of looking into his room about two or three years ago. And my goodness, oh dear. That needs cleaning up. And I said, oh, no, wait a minute. I just want to shut the door and keep walking. It really is that awful. Mm. People are, rather than trying to deal with the mess, they're wanting to shut the door and pretend it's not happening behind that door. Well, I think we're we're always sort of in an interesting time. The dynamics that have led to this situation go back around about 70 years when Britain, after the Second World War, really had to decide what its primary orientation in the world was going to be. Was it going to be to the what used to be described as the empire or the commonwealth? Did it want to be uh, with the world's largest economy, an English-speaking nation just over the Atlantic being the United States? Or did it want to be with Europe? Did it want to be with a new union with Europe? So that debate has been ongoing in Britain for a very long time. It's just really been brought to a head over the last uh, three years or so in uh, lead up to the 2016 referendum Uh, the decision of 52% of people in Britain to leave the European Union, something that I think many people thought would be pretty straightforward. But uh, I think one thing we found over the last three years is the room has got ever messier as it's far from straightforward. Yeah. I was actually landed in London the day it happened. I remember clearly in my, even though I was in the fog of jet lag, seeing David Cameron walk out the front of 10 Downing Street, that famous door, and say, see you later, I'm out of here, the people don't want me here, I'm gone. It was all because of a referendum that they held around the topic, one topic, one question, two answers, should we be in the European Union? And from there, from three years, like as we sit here right now, three years on, and you could listen to this podcast in 10 years and it might still be going, I'm mm. not sure. It's it, it's all about the ramifications for, for Britain, for trade, borders, maybe Eurovision as well, how they're... Um, going into that, but it's morphed into complete chaos. And I'm fascinated to see how this can happen within the realms of a democratic society. Well, Britain used to be, and for some is still regarded as the sort of mother of democracies with the mother of parliaments, you know, uh, so many political systems around the world, including our own, would uh, be characterised broadly as Westminster systems. Uh, with democratically elected parliaments, prime ministers, many of the elements within the British uh, constitution are reflected in our own. There are, of course, differences. We have a federal system here in Australia, which is which is somewhat somewhat different. 
But um, the thing about Brexit is it's a very easy phrase. It wasn't a phrase that you would find in any any political dictionary around about 10 years ago. It was it was coined very, very recently. But the sort of stresses that it has put Britain under are stresses in relation to its economic future, who it trades with and on what terms. The union of the United Kingdom, when you have more than 60% of people in Scotland voting to remain part of the European Union and yet having imposed on them that they're going to be leaving. That, that puts real stresses uh, uh, under the, the, the United Kingdom, uh, it raises real questions about what the United Kingdom might even be in the coming years. It also puts enormous stresses on the relationship with Ireland. And, uh, and this isn't just an academic point. There has been really dreadful political violence in Ireland uh, through the 1960s and 1970s, and it's put uh, the Anglo-Irish Agreement, negotiated by former Prime Minister John Major and, and also Tony Blair, who I, I used to work with in the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, there are many people in Ireland who aren't looking at this as some sort of academic question or, or making flippant remarks like I did about uh, teenagers' bedrooms. For them, mm. it's really real, and if this isn't resolved in a proper way and in a clear way, uh, they fear that you know, it really could return to a stage of political violence. But um, when you think about... Um, the effect on a political system, really what we're looking at in terms of the way that system operates in the United Kingdom is the way in which a parliamentary democracy is looking to handle a plebiscitary decision, a referendum, as you described it, Adam, a very clear yes or no, in or out. The decision is out. Well, how is that then going to be implemented? It can't simply be done. It's not simple. It's uh, an arrangement which in legal terms has gone back more than 40 years and affects so many different elements of just the lives that, that people in Britain lead in terms of the jobs they do, in terms of the products they buy, in terms of whether or not they can work in the European Union or whether or not they can employ people who might well help provide health care or help provide um, the ability to pick fruit in Kent. You know, you can just keep going and the terms on which this divorce takes place uh, will have quite significant consequences. So just briefly, the European Union, just to, to give that context, that's a, basically a bunch of countries in Europe that got together and basically said, economically, let's try and be as one. And you can trade off with each other and the, the deals that are done that benefit those in Europe. Is that too simplistic or...? It's a tad simplistic. Uh, I'm not saying it's untrue. Well, I'm a simplistic um, guy, so that's the thing. <laughs> that's all right, Adam. I mean, I, 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 I would, I would uh, lay no claims to being an expert in the history of the European Union, but the history of the European Union really goes back to arrangements post the Second World War. Um, post that Second War, um, there was a very, very strong feeling um, within Europe that the dynamics that led to the First and Second World Wars could never be allowed to emerge again. Mm. and that Europe needed to be as one. Initially, that was with a coal and steel confederation between France and Germany. That then led to wider political developments and economic developments, whereby more members of more states in Europe became part of the European economic community, as it was originally termed. And when Britain first joined uh, the European Union, it was called the EEC, the European Economic Community, in those days back in the 1970s, it only had nine members. Uh, some of the key large economies within Europe were the members. Now you have 27 
other members. Now, even in itself, I think that whether it's politically, I think culturally, that is something really quite difficult for Britain and the United Kingdom to handle. Um, why do I say that? Because Britain has a very strong colonial past. And the way it sort of sees itself in the world or sees the role of states in the world is either dominant or subservient, one or the other. Uh, when you're part of a, a union with that many different states, with so many different things to be agreed in terms of the way in which economic arrangements and other arrangements are going to be, are going to be decided, being either dominant or subservient doesn't really get you very far. It's far more nuanced than that. There's a whole series of complex negotiations that have to be run through. And uh, just as Brexit itself is a false binary choice, you can't really say yes or no. Um, in the same way, I think it's been very difficult for Britain to take on this new role where it's, it's one of many and looking to make decisions in a sort of broader collective self-interest rather than just in the interests of the United Kingdom itself. It's, it's one of those on this side of the world that you, you look at and go, well, thank goodness that's not us involved in something like that. We're, we're removed from it. But here's what I really want to know to pin it to our own backyard. Can you see something like Brexit and its fallout, um, three-year fallout, having the same effect within Australia's political system, something of that magnitude affecting our system and how it operates? Look, I can't really, Adam. Uh, I, can, I can maybe try and describe a sort of future scenario, but the more that you go into those scenarios, the more it's just telling stories. I, 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 I don't believe that uh, it's likely that uh, the Australian political system or indeed Australia as a nation is going to confront anything close to the mess that is Brexit. I think if you're looking in constitutional terms, um, I often think it's good to, when trying to answer a question like this, is to just use the key word at the beginning of the sentence, which is like. Like what? Like what uh, uh, is close uh, in Australian history to anything like uh, Brexit? And I think the only thing I could really think that would be a little bit like Brexit is going back to the dismissal in, uh, in uh, the 1970s under the Whitlam government when you had a real constitutional crisis because you had the head of state's representative in Australia being the Governor-General dismissing the democratically elected government of the day being the Whitlam government because of Sir John Kerr's argument that uh, it was a completely dysfunctional government and couldn't actually pass a budget through the federal parliament and then it was incumbent upon the Queen's representative, as he was then and as our current government general is as well, came in to say, well, we need to clear, clear this up, clear, clean this, clear this up. Mm. But this was only really a constitutional crisis and the constitutional crisis was then resolved and then people moved on. Brexit has constitutional elements, it's got economic elements, it's deeply rooted in about 70 years of history. Um, you can't think of any activity or development over the coming few months or so that is actually going to put this thing back in the box. Even if we have a no-deal outcome, what Boris Johnson is looking to appeal to is the, the father, like, like I, looking in the bedroom and going, oh dear, gee, that smells a bit and there's a real mess and I'm not sure if he's really studying for his HSC. I'm just closing the door and moving on. <laughs> I'm closing the door and moving on. I think Boris Johnson wants to say, well, look, let's just get this done Let's just leave. No deal or deal doesn't matter. We're just going to leave the European Union. There's a sense that that will somehow put an end to it all. What, leave the house and leave the room how it is? 
essentially. Well, yeah, the well, the that, next person who buys it, deal with it. Well, that's right. I mean, I think it's just sort of leaving it alone. I mean, I think if Britain does, which is, is quite possible, uh, notwithstanding all the efforts of the current British Parliament to stop that happening, it's still quite possible that Britain could engage in a no-deal outcome and simply come tumbling out of the European Union with no rules around how people might move, how markets might operate, how trade might be decided, mm. you know, how it is if you make Nissan cars in Sunderland, on what terms of trade you're going to be able to sell those cars made in Britain in Italy. You simply don't know that. And if you tumble out, if Britain tumbles out of the European Union on October 31st, Boris Johnson might want to say, well, there you go, we've gone, it's all simple now. I fear not. There might be a little bit of a sigh of relief, but pretty soon Nissan is going to have to be making decisions about where they make their vehicles. And those decisions will have serious consequences. So even though it might not be a single deal, there will be numerous, numerous negotiations that have to be ongoing with the largest single market uh, in the world, which is just on the other side of the English Channel. Does any of this affect Australia directly? I think it does. And I think it does in, in a way which is, which is quite particular. Australia is a young country. That's a wonderful thing. It can't sit back on its, so much of its, its history. It always needs to be uh, looking forward. Of course, uh, when we take uh, the history of our first peoples, and Australia has, many would say, the, the longest history of anywhere. But when it comes to post-white settlement of Australia, it doesn't have a long history and therefore is, is shaping its role in the world. And up until now, if, if your listeners sort of think back to their parents or grandparents, if they were living here uh, in Australia, certainly Britain and the relationship with Britain was a far bigger element within Australian life and Australian culture. You really have to go to a, a local council chambers to see a picture of Queen Elizabeth II these days. But uh, back in the day, you you would have uh, that maybe on some of the plates that people would eat off. And 1952, when the Queen visited Australia, you can see those images. I'm sure if you just you know do a bit of a search on Google and mm. find some footage on YouTube, you'll see the crowds thick, thick through the streets of Sydney waving flags to see the then young Queen uh, uh, Elizabeth. I think all of that has changed quite significantly and we don't look to Britain in the way that possibly Australia used to. And yet the constitutional arrangements are unchanged, um, but our orientation and our economic orientation has shifted massively. Um, and indeed, the most critical decision with regard to that, I think, goes back to the very start of all of this, back in... 1975, when uh, Britain first had a referendum on whether or not it wanted to be part of the European Union, and the very clear decision, over 67% of the British public said, well, British voting public decided that they did want to be part of that European economic entity. And it was at that point where really that had a major impact on that economic relationship between Australia and the UK, and Australia's orientation and continued orientation has been far more to uh, our region, to China, to Indonesia, to India, to other, to other countries in our region. And it's those relationships which I think are now far more, or at least as important, um, as the relationship with the UK. 
what are the differences between British and Australian politics so far as you can tell? I, I've got one, for instance. It looks like our Prime Minister goes to a hairdresser to cut his hair as opposed to Boris Johnson, who looks like he cuts his own. But apart from that, what are some of the differences between the, the two lines of politics in either country at the moment? Politics is affected by, by numerous, numerous different factors. But, um, you know, in its essence, the, the nature of political debate is about attempting to make a case whereby you might secure power. Now, politics is, yes, it's about that, who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. But also that politics, and in terms of the way that those debates play out and governments get elected, that politics leads to policy. And policy is something that's on the front page of the newspaper, might be discussed on a radio program. It's front and centre. Issues come to the fore, like, for example, marriage equality. Now, we don't discuss marriage equality so much because decisions have been made whereby the rules change and that is now pretty much bedded down. It might come back to the fore. But those things really tend to take our attention. But our politics and the policies uh, that affect our lives, I would argue, are ubiquitous. They're day to day. I'm sitting here in your very nice studio here in central Sydney, and I look at the table in front of me, and I think, where was that made? How are the people employed who made that table? Is it imported from overseas, or is it a skilled person who was educated in Australia under Australian education system who actually put this together, or did they get a trade? So in a way, you can look at any kind of, or indeed you walk out into the street and you breathe the air. Well, that air in Australia or in Sydney is regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency. That's a, an agency of the state government. We then have a member of parliament who gets elected, who's a member of the government, who's given the job of being environment minister. They take carriage of what those regulations are in terms of what I can actually breathe into my lungs each day. So you're not conscious of it, but politics and policy does affect us uh, each and every day. And that's true in any political system. And the moment you go to a political system that's perhaps not as functional, although we, of course we always like to look at our political system as, as dysfunctional and a mess and who's stabbing who and who's up, who's down. But in many ways, in terms of the amenity that we all enjoy, the schools that we send our kids to, the hospitals that we hopefully don't need to go to too often if we get on well, they're pretty good compared to many, many other places in the world where our political systems aren't quite as robust as I would say the Australian is, the Australian political uh, system is. But I think that there are very, very important differences underlying that similarity in relation to the way in which the relationship between politics and policy plays out. And I think one that's very underappreciated in the Australian system is that we have an alternative vote system. So if I want to get elected and I get 45% of the people thinking I am absolutely fantastic, that will get me elected in pretty much every constituency in the UK under a first-past-the-post system. And I can appeal to that 45%. In the Australian system, uh, with preferential voting, getting 45 isn't enough because if you get 45, you still might not get 51 on the basis of second preferences. And those people in second preferences or indeed third preferences can't either love or hate you. They need to think you're sort of okay. And hence, steady as she goes, um, not wishing to be too forthright in one's uh, perspective on politics and policy, 
actually is a very wise position to take as a Democrat or an aspirant to being democratically elected in Australia. It tends to really create a a much firmer middle ground in our politics and I think provides quite quite an effective, if you want to see it in these terms, insulation against, uh, against rather simplistic populist, if we want to use that term, simple answers to what often are very complex problems. So in, in a general sense, you're saying that we're insulated against things like, example, Brexit happening, because that the outlandishness of the fallout from something like that wouldn't get to that stage here in Australia. Yeah, for, I, I, that is what I'm saying, but but for a number of additional reasons. I mean, if you've got a really, really important question of national importance, and I think Brexit would be one of those, there is a very strong argument that says that rather than just going for a simple majority, you need to go for what is known as a supermajority. So if you think about um, any decision that you might want to take, say as an extended family about where you go on your holiday next year, and you're all sitting around going, oh, gee, you know, if been working hard, we should go on a big family holiday, let's take grandma and grandpa as well. And uh, you sort of say, well, here's a good way to think about this, let's, let's kind of vote on it. And half the family wants to go to the Northern Territory, and the other half of the family kind of wants to go to Aspen skiing. These are very, very different things, very, very different holidays. And you might well say, well, we're only going to take a decision on these two things if we get at least six out of the ten of us agreeing rather than just, well, let's actually, no, that's still going to be a pretty crappy holiday with four of us super unhappy. So let's go eight out of 10 for our families. So you get a super majority. Now, in Australia, if you want to get a referendum up, you need to get majorities within all of the states. That's quite a a big task to do that across Tasmania, Queensland, Western Australia, etc. It's actually a very difficult thing to do. Whereas in Britain, there was no super majority uh, required for the outcome of this referendum. And the outcome was only really 5-5, five, five, if you want to use the family metaphor. Mm. So you've got five really, really pissed off people saying, this is not what we wanted, this is not what we voted for. But the manner in which those who wanted Britain to leave the European Union have then pursued the debate has said, well, this is definitive. This is the voice of the people. They've decided they want to leave and therefore we should leave. But the country's still split right down the middle. The country's certainly split down the middle. The country is split between young and old. The country is split between Scotland, Northern Ireland, England, London. Uh, It's split in terms of educational levels. You almost think of any, any criteria that you might want to employ in terms of understanding the answer to that question, is Britain split on this question of Brexit? And it comes up with really, really clear numbers that Britain is split. And a different model of political leadership, Adam, might have been rather than saying, well, there you go, the people have spoken, they want to leave, we're going to, Brexit is Brexit, we're just going to have to pursue this. Another model of political leadership might well have been, I've heard what has been said, this is going to be highly complex, we need to work this through together, we need to look at the substance of what the implications will be for our country, and possibly, once we've decided exactly what the choice is, not the simple choice of stay or leave, but leave under these terms or stay under these terms, then we will be putting that reasonable, clear-sighted, informed choice back to the people. A lot to be said out of this after listening to all that about um, a dictatorship, which is how I 
uh, vote on my family holidays. It's a full-on dictatorship in my household, so we go on holidays what I say. So, um, well, Adam, sort of- <laughs> Adam, I'm sure in your family it's an enlightened dictatorship. <laughs> And an enlightened dictatorship is a beautiful thing, but the trouble is that dictators that offer enlightened dictatorship <laughs> often don't really deliver on their promise of enlightenment. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, I think it was a very famous quote from Churchill um, about, you know, democracy. I haven't got the quote in front of me. If I could boot up my iPhone, I'd give it to you straight, straight from the, the, the memory bank of what Churchill said. But what Churchill was saying was that democracy is, and then he described all of the negative elements of democracy, but it is still the best form of government that we've ever come up with. So I tend to side with Winston Churchill on that. Okay, I'll keep that in mind next time we're voting for a family holiday at home. Just on the Queen as well, okay, you made the earlier example how she got involved Mm. indirectly in our politics in 1975 with the dismissal of the Whitlam government. She, like I've watched The Crown on Netflix Mm -hmm. and... um, you know, all those meetings with Churchill and the, the new mm. prime ministers that followed and she's very standoffish in terms of getting involved with it and they respect her greatly but mm. they know that she's not going to make a decision back the other way. So she just dead set does not get involved in politics full stop. Look, the great strength of uh, a constitutional monarchy is that it provides stability and it provides continuity. Uh, the Queen has been around since 1952 She is now, I think, 94. She's seen a lot of prime ministers on a weekly basis and had chats with them about how's it going. But the position that she holds in the British constitution is really providing that stability and continuity. She does not get involved in politics, nor nor should she under the British uh, system. Sadly, in the last couple of weeks or so, Boris Johnson, I think, has made what may turn out to be quite a significant political error, um, both in terms of his political career, but in terms of what he might want to achieve in the longer term on Brexit or anything else, in that he's sought to and has succeeded in what is called proroguing Parliament, which is closing Parliament down. Now, doing that in a parliamentary democracy is, is a very dangerous thing to do. Um, He's doing that, uh, most people would argue, solely for his own um, self-serving political purposes in relation to Brexit and other things. But there's a, you know, he sent members of the Privy Council who advised the Queen to Balmoral to ask her to prorogue Parliament and put her in a situation where she couldn't really not accept the advice of uh, her Prime Minister, who at that time held a majority within the Parliament. That's how he's got his job. That's how he's on the other side of the black door at Downing Street is because he has a majority uh, within the British Parliament or had that. He no longer has that. And I think having involved the Queen in the way that the current British Prime Minister has and with a really uncertain environment in terms of what happens in terms of the longevity of the current uh, Parliament, um, I fear that there may well be uh, a situation where the Queen might have to accept meetings from other aspirant politicians wishing to make a case for different approaches to how we deal with Brexit and other things. And and this is a really, really difficult thing for the British Constitution to handle. She, she really needs that at 94 years of age. Uh, is what is happening or has happened in Britain over the past three years um, where everything has been dominated by the, okay, life goes on and things are still happening, bills are still being passed in, in Parliament, but there's always this nagging feeling that this is central to a lot of things or it will come back eventually to this 
this being Brexit, is what is happening in Britain an outlier in that sense? Or is it endemic of what is happening in Western politics or the path that Western politics is going down, that it just gets caught up in this chaotic kind of being, if you like, of way of life, political life? Yes, it's a really superb question, Adam. Thanks. I'll, I'll try my. No I'll try. I'll try my best. And one out of ten, not bad. Well, look, well, maybe one way to get across what I want to say is: imagine you're a young family and you you live in a suburb of a town like Reading. You've got a mortgage. You've got two young kids who you send to school. You both have jobs. You work extremely hard. You're looking to balance time. You're looking to balance effort. You're trying to make ends meet, and you're look, looking forward to. To the future, and um, so Reading's just outside London. So that's it's right. Yeah, not, it's just, not in the it's just there. It's, no, no, it's just the west west of London. Um, and you think of that young family, and there are things that they might be concerned about. They might be concerned about air quality. They might be concerned about the quality of their schooling that their kids are going to be uh, sent to. They might be concerned even about something like global climate change and what impact that might have. Uh, on the future. And then when they turn on the radio or they look at the TV or they pick up their smartphone, all they hear the political class is talking about is backstops, um, withdrawal agreements, um, various terminology in relation to the negotiations between this acronym or that acronym, the EU, the Commission, etc. And they don't really understand nor should they be expected to understand quite how all of this activity is going to affect them and what they care about and the rhythm of their days. And I I fear that what that does is it it promotes a further alienation from politics. It makes people tired. It makes them maybe a little bit bored. They want the cabaret to end and they want politicians to start really acting in the interests of the nation and in their interests of, of them as they go about their daily lives. So I think that what Brexit does is it promotes uh, a, an appeal to for those for that that family that I've just described that they wish it could just end. They want it to be simple. Please, can we get back to a you know a more decent, open politics which isn't quite so toxic? But the difficulty is that really once you've let the cat out of the bag. It's very, very hard to, to put it back. And I, I, I fear that uh, this debate will go on. It'll remain pretty abstract. It'll probably be really quite nasty. Um, and, you know, it looks like there's going to be a general election in the UK that might create some clarity. I fear it may not. I fear that the result might actually just further embed the divisions that there are around Brexit. There are those who argue that we need to have another referendum. If we have another referendum, there are real tensions in in doing that in the UK as well. So for mine, I think that when we think about how we're conducting our political debates, they actually need to be about something (laughs) that people uh, understand and that people really care about. And although they may care about Britain's relationship with Europe, do they really care about it that much that it totally dominates political discourse and media coverage of what's going on uh, in politics? Sounds simple. (laughs) <laughs> sounds simple, sounds a complete mess. It sounds a complete mess. And as mentioned before, thankfully, one that Australia is one or two steps removed from. Nick, thank you for your time. Much appreciated. It's a complex, complex issue, but you've broken it down for us. I've got a bit more clarity about it right now. Thank well, we, you. We go back to being a dictator tonight with your family. <laughs> <Yeah>. I'll try. <laughs> my last long. Thanks very much, Adam. Could be a junta. <laughs> 
Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.